Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to a special episode of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to ajcbreakdown.com. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Breakdown. We have a special episode for you about a tragic case from coastal Georgia that's been thrust onto the national scene. I know you know what case I'm talking about. It's the February 23rd killing of Ahmad Arbery. Arbery, 25 years old, African-American, was shot three times in the Satilla Shores neighborhood near Brunswick, where he was confronted by two white men. The family says Arbery was jogging. The suspects say they thought he was a burglar. The video of the shooting, taken by William Roddy Bryan as he drove behind Arbery, has now been seen by millions. It shows Arbery run up behind a pickup truck with 64-year-old Greg McMichael standing in the cab, a handgun in his hand, His 34-year-old son, Travis, stands just outside the driver's side door, armed with a shotgun. It looks like Arbery, who was unarmed, wanted to avoid the McMichaels. He tries to run past the other side of the truck, on the passenger side. But then you see Arbery tussling with Travis McMichael over the shotgun. The video is hard to watch. Extremely hard to watch. And to hear those gunshots... The video first appeared online May 5th, posted by a radio station. It sparked a national outcry over racial stereotyping and vigilanteism. The GBI was immediately brought into the case and began its investigation the following day. On May 7th, Greg and Travis McMichael were arrested and charged with felony murder and aggravated assault. They remain in the Glen County Jail. The case is now on its fourth prosecutor, which is remarkable in and of itself. The first two DAs, Jackie Johnson and George Barnhill, recused themselves. A third, Tom Durden, was replaced by Joyette Holmes, the district attorney of Cobb County. And as we were putting this episode together, Brian, who took the viral video, was arrested and charged with felony murder and criminal attempt to commit the false imprisonment of Arbery. I'm now going to turn this over to my colleague, Greg Bluestein, the AJC's Crackerjack Politics reporter. He's going to interview the newspaper's former managing editor, Bert Roten. He lives in nearby St. Simons, and he's covered the case for us down there. Bert, it should be noted, had the initial idea more than five years ago for the AJC to start its breakdown podcast. 
Greg will next talk to Brad Schrade. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who's investigated police shootings for the AJC. He's also covered the Arbery shooting. Here's Greg. Today we're talking with Burt Roten Jr., former AJC managing editor who lives, he was retired actually, to Glen County. He thought he was retired. Um, he's had a front row seat to what's happening in Brunswick, and he's been drafted back to work for the AJC, this time as a reporter covering this case. Bert, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Greg. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you, too. So you're in South Georgia, not far from the Georgia-Florida border. What's it like in Glenn County and in Brunswick? And how is it different from, say, two months ago, right after the shooting took place, or even when you found out about the case? So I live on St. Simons Island, and there are, you know, the there are some islands here that people call the Golden Isles, which are a vacation destination and a tourism kind of place. So um, so you have two worlds here. You have the mainland with Brunswick, and then you have the islands, which are largely, you know, retirees and, and, and tourists. The, the, this place has been overtaken by this story. Um, we were overtaken by the coronavirus story before because of all the implications down here to the economy and everything. But this story has uh, blown up on Facebook. It is whenever we can have conversations because we're keeping socially distanced. It is the topic. Um, since I've become involved with the story, people who know me and people who just are aware of, um, of me through I've given speeches at the Rotary and that kind of thing are in contact with me. And it's it's um, it is the single most riveting um, topic down here because it, it gets into race. It gets into um, sort of the Southern identity, um, you know, it gets into guns. It gets in a lot of things. A lot of people who live here are not from the South um, and, and um, view this in a, in a totally different cultural frame. And so um, it's, it's a fairly um, complex topic down here that, that really has taken over everything. Now, can you break down what does the public know as of, as of right now about the case and what, what, and what's also remains to be seen? What, what's sort of shrouded in mystery? Well, I mean, the, we, we actually know probably more than you normally would in a, in a, in a criminal trial like this. Um, you know, because you have, you have so much video that, um, has emerged from the homeowners, particularly this house under construction that became has become in itself kind of a character in the story. Um, you have a, a, a pretty solid nine one one record, um, so th- so we know a lot about um, what happened from the time uh, Ahmad Arbery stepped onto that vacant house because there there's just so so much electronic recording going on. Um, we've all seen the video. Um, mm-hmm. We, I, I suspect there is a fuller version of that video that will that will emerge at some point. Um, there may even be another video of the actual shooting. So I think the public knows that Ahmad Arbery was on the street that day, um, either jogging or there for some other purpose. That um, he when when he went into that neighborhood, it was already a very tense place because there had been a lot of police calls uh, reporting activity and suspicious people and and um someone who looks like arbery in houses and around the neighborhood um and we know that the mcmichaels had been involved earlier in um a confrontation with him in the, at the vacant house and that uh they saw him, the father greg mcmichael saw him coming down the street took after him in the truck and uh 
they ended up having a struggle and, and Ahmad Arbery had uh, suffered three shotgun wounds. Uh, two, two of them to his torso and killed him. Now, you and, you and um, our colleague Brad Schrade wrote a story about records that show the neighborhood really on edge before um, that confrontation. Um, so what, what can you say about the neighborhood and its sort of view of, of, um, uh, of or its, I guess its concerns? I don't know how to put it, but, but how, this sort of, um, how, this, how this confrontation was triggered. So the, for some months now, the, the police records we've gotten so far go back to last summer. There have been a series of calls over time that, um, where, where people were saying there was a suspicious person um, in the neighborhood, a few around that house under construction, of uh, people who they just didn't understand were where they were. Uh, the police had recorded 87 uh, calls over that period of time, and a good many of them ha- had to do with suspicious behavior and that. It's hard to pinpoint exactly what every one of those calls uh what, what, which every call was about, but you can you can see if you if you get deeper into the records that a lot of them had to do with um, you know somebody just being on property trespassing, um, and and this made its way both onto the neighborhood Facebook page and also into the next door, which is the the app that if you live in a neighborhood you have you can become a member of, and then you share information um, about all sorts of things from what you want to sell in your garage to uh, you know, the fact that you've seen somebody who you're concerned about. And so the police reports, the police calls show that, um, this was a neighborhood who was actually having quite a, quite a few interactions with the local police. The beat cop there came through quite a few times. Um, and you also had this conversation going on in social media about, um, someone who, or it could have been more people, but certainly this sort of phantom presence in the neighborhood that was making people very nervous. So we'll be speaking with Brad later on in this episode about how the local prosecutors handled the case, but what can you say about the McMichael's relationship with the district attorney's office? Well, he retired um, almost exactly a year ago after 20 years working as an investigator for the district attorney, and he, uh, before that, was a police officer. Um, and the uh, prosecutors, as soon as they realized who the police had um, were looking at in this case, recused themselves um, and, and and told the police that they were that they were not going to be able to to be involved um, in prosecuting the the case. Now they didn't inform the attorney general of their recusal for a few days, but they did tell the police pretty much that day that they they couldn't be involved. Now you you guys uncovered records that even showed that the police had reached out to Mr. McMichael, um, it, and, and well, and and also the the owner of the of the um, the home that was under construction, right, in case they needed help um, surveilling the property. Yeah, the the beat cop who was there a lot and was responding to a lot of these calls, um, just said, look, there's a guy who lives here who um, was a DA's investigator for a long time. He was a police officer. Um, why don't you just give him a call if you're concerned? And he has expressed an interest in, in, in being helpful. Um, and and that that is, you know, has been a source of some concern because it, it gives you the impression that um, that maybe the police were, were – um, inadvertently deputizing McMichael to to be sort of their representative there um, 
if you know if, if they weren't around or to maybe a, a re, someone who the neighborhoods could, neighbors could give a call to if they if they had a concern um you know and and also mcmichael had had um you know a direct encounter with who we believe was ahmad harbury uh, just a couple of weeks before the the incident at the um at the house that's under construction um again he the we know, we know now pretty much that it was Ahmad was picked up on on the video surveillance video at the house and you know that pinged the owner's phone he called and uh, ultimately uh, both of McMichael's became involved in in searching for whoever was in the house who they never found um, so he he had all he was already sort of primed for something at the moment he saw Arbery in the neighborhood. Now, the, the, the shooting death has instantly become a major part of, of the political campaigns, too. You, you saw both President Trump and Joe Biden condemn it in different ways. And, of course, in Georgia, it's become front and center of a lot of campaigns um, in their calls for more changes to the criminal justice system. What's interesting to me is how President Trump, all while condemning it, also said there might be more than meets the eye. Um, Georgia Republicans largely did not echo that. They were unequivocal for the most part in their um, condemnation of of not only the shooting death, but also the way it was handled, calling for thorough investigations of how local prosecutors handled the case. I mean, the, the, you know, Brunswick has become a place of, of sort of uh, serial demonstrations. And um, it is it is now nearly uh, routine for people here to drive by and see a group of people gathering. There have been some pretty large ones, which were significant and somewhat different than that. But this has become um, a kind of small mecca where people who who have concerns about the criminal justice system, particularly in the way it's interacted with African-Americans, have come down here and use this as a, a venue to, to have that conversation. So we get killed running in the neighborhood. Where can we go? Where can we go? It get justice. Hey. Everybody's hollering about justice, but it really is just us. Yeah. Right. It's it, it's it's really generated a lot of talk down here about because the the thing that about this case that that it it brings all those issues to a head. So it brings the issue of what is what is appropriate for a citizen's arrest. What is what is the right time for a citizen to to respond um, if they suspect somebody doing something. It raises questions about. Um, you know, uh, Georgia carry laws where, where it's, you know, you can hop in a truck and be armed and all that without any, uh, without any restrictions. It raises questions about whether Georgia should have a hate crime. If, the, if this crime was motivated because of Arbery's race, that raises a whole other set of questions. So there, there were a, a lot of issues out there that um, were already sort of uh, in various stages of discussion. This this one case brings them all to a head. I do want to ask, too, what it's like to be covering a, a protest in a pandemic era, um, because I've covered some rallies, I've covered press conferences, but it's very hard to have a, a true uh, protest when you're supposed to be social distancing. So when you've gone to Brunswick, when you've gone to the courthouse, when you've gone to the neighborhood, um, how are people kind of uh, responding and dealing with the pandemic at the same time? Um, you know, it's, it's hard. It, uh, also just as a, for a, a personal, um, piece of, of the answer to that. So I was a reporter most of my career. I, I worked for the AJC about 40 years, but most of that was as a reporter. And so it, it's not, it's not 
um, an unfamiliar experience to be in a, cr in a crowd of people who are protesting or expressing themselves. And so the problem that I have a little bit is that there is there is very little social distancing. There's very little caution in these crowds. And some of them are hundreds of people packed in to uh, an area around the, the old county courthouse or the, actually the new county courthouse. And then and then in the neighborhoods, they're just they, they're collecting the neighborhoods. And so it's hard for me to remember that I'm supposed to be masked and keeping distance um, at the AJC's suggestion. Um, when I'm covering these things, and because you, you, you know I, I'm focusing on listening, I'm fo focusing on gathering images, which is something reporters do now, and um, and so it's hard to even think about that. Um, and the people in these groups are not thinking a lot about that either. You will see maybe half in mass, and but no real effort to. So I probably have physically touched more human beings in the past three weeks. Um, than I have in the past two years, just because suddenly you're in big crowds, the crowds ebb and flow and people move around and you bump into people. Um, so, so it actually is pretty unnerving. Um, and also the, you know, there is a pretty strong call down here to pe for people if they care about issues like this to come out to these protests. And there's even, I would say even a little social pressure to show up and be seen. And so it, it, um, if I were a medical official as opposed to a journalist, and if I, if I saw these crowds and how people were behaving in them, I would look with some horror. Um, it, it, is, it is a um, textbook case of how we probably should not be behave, behaving with this pandemic. I had not realized, I thought that um, the social distancing was a little bit more aggressive doing that. Um, I want to ask you two separately, uh, beyond the, you know, the pandemic realities, what it's been like to think you were retiring a couple years ago, right? Quiet, <laughs> golden years in the golden Isles, and then suddenly to be thrust into one of the, really, the, the nation's most important and fast developing stories. I see your filing stories late at night. Your you, your Sunday story with Brad Schrade was thousands of words. These are not easy pieces to develop at all. So, um, so much for retirement, at least for now. Well, I, you know, um, it, it, it's not a great way to come out of retirement because it's such a a, a, a tragic, awful story that um, you know just sort of wrenches you all the time. And and these are. These are real people. I mean, this is a mother who's lost a child. This is a father who's lost a child, and people are really aggrieved. So it, it, it is, it's it's not the way I would like to have uh, resumed an active reporting life. But but having said that, I've covered warfare. I've covered um, just about everything over my career, and so I'm I'm used to it a lot. It and it's it's a fascinating story, and you know that the story itself begins to pull you. Um, almost against your will into it. And so, you know, I, I have not yet been able to resist it. Deeper and deeper into the swirling vortex. Well, we're glad you're you're involved in it. Uh, and I just have a last question. So what, what, what are you watching next? Because this is not a, a cut and dry case that's just going to suddenly fall off the front pages in a couple of days. This is going to be weeks, months, even years. No, I think, I mean, you know, there's this sort of constant uh, deluge of bits and pieces that, that, um, are going to come out. Um, uh, you know, the the uh, local police have had over 500 open records requests, and so and a lot of journalists are going to be looking, and not just journalists, but activists and other people too are going to be looking at all the case records, and everyone's going to see something slightly different, and so it's going to feel it's going to feel like something's happening almost every day when 
Um, the real story to me is what, what happens legally now. Um, you wonder how this legal process can, can um, proceed in, with coronavirus. They can't really impanel a grand jury for a while. So there's a lot of legal stuff, I think, that, that is kind of unique and fascinating um, that will be worth watching. Um, I also th- also think that, you know, uh, this area is a little bit of a tinderbox right now. Um, emotions are high. Uh, people are coming here from all over the country. Um, you know, it's, it, it wouldn't take a lot to, to create some other, some other flashpoint down here. So I, I think those are the things, the legal process, just the, the, the sort of humanity in collision, um, stuff down here and the million little things that are likely to be um, surfacing as as themselves all interesting stories and, and all this. I think all those things are still pretty uh, rich potential for news and, and all sorts of other things. Well, Bert, thank you so much um, for joining us. Uh, and I know you'll be keeping all of our readers uh, in, in, in up to the very latest detail of this case as we go on along with our team. We, we literally have, I don't know, it seems like uh, sometimes a dozen reporters back in Atlanta, at least in in some degree of involvement with this case too. So we've got a large team working on it, but Bird is part of the core smaller group that is just on every single development, breaking news left and right. So thank you so much for joining us, Bert. It's been a pleasure. And now I'm speaking with AJC investigative reporter, Brad Schrade, who spent extensive time writing about Brunswick and its cops and courts. He can tell us a little more about the area and its judicial system. How's it going, Brad? Good, Greg. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. I'm good. And thank you for your time. So look, the case is now on its fourth district attorney. Two Glenn County commissioners say the district attorney, Jackie Johnson, refused to allow the arrests of the McMichaels, one of whom worked for her, the claim she denies. She says it's retaliation for indicting the police chief of the Glenn County Police Department back in late February. Now the attorney general of Georgia, Chris Carr, is looking into how Johnson and George Barnhill handled the case. Look, I know this is very complicated, but is this dysfunction par for the course in Brunswick? What what has your experience covering them been like? This this, uh, district attorney's office, this judicial circuit, this police department has faced questions about for years about the way it handles justice. And when one of its own is in trouble, uh, there have been many cases that uh, in the past where there have been cases in the past where People have uh, been uh, shot by the police, uh, and there were questions about the way it was handled. Brunswick was the site of probably one of the most notorious police shootings in recent Georgia history, the Carolyn Small case. She was a 35-year-old mother of two, was having a mental breakdown at a local shopping center mall inside her car. The Glynn County Police come up to her. She drives away, leads officers on a low-speed chase through Brunswick for about 20 minutes. They finally get her car spun out. They do things on the road that pop her tires. She was riding on rims. They finally got her car pulled over, and they gave her had her hemmed in by two or three police vehicles and a utility pole. This is all captured on video, uh, one of the officers' dash cam videos. As Small goes forward and backward, she's clearly hemmed in, and a Georgia State trooper on the scene tries to go and get her out of the vehicle. He sees two Glynn County police officers with their guns zeroed in on the windshield. He thinks he's in danger because of those guns and gets out of the way. 
One of the officers said, if she comes forward again, I'm going to shoot. She eases her car forward. It's bumping between the bumper and the utility pole, and they spray six or seven bullets into the windshield and shoot her in the head. This was all captured on video. When you see this video, it was it's really remarkable. It's hard to believe there's a human being in the car that got shot in that manner. Um, the GBI's lead investigator on the case called it the worst police shooting he'd ever seen, and he thought it was a bad shoot. Um, in that case, the GBI was called into Glynn County, uh, and the police department uh, worked with them. Uh, the department, though, really wasn't happy the GBI was there. They were really there protecting their own officers. In many ways, they were undermining the GBI's investigation. They created this false evidence. They created an animation that was later shown to the grand jury, and the GBI agents called a cartoon that was not factually accurate. In that case, they had a willing participant, the local DA down there, this, the same Jackie Johnson in this case uh, that's in, that's now at the in the middle of the Arbery case was the a young district attorney at the time in Brunswick. She did some really peculiar things to help the officers in that case. Uh, she gave them the evidence before they went to the grand jury. She allowed the animation to be shown that the GBI thought was factually inaccurate. We later spoke to several of her former assistant prosecutors in that case. Many of them were taken off the case. All of them thought it was a real troubling, bad shoot, and they were sidelined by Jackie Johnson, They, according to them. One of the assistant DAs who later spoke out uh, didn't know a lot about what exa- all the details until we published our investigation. And they didn't really understand the full scope of what was going on. They just saw it from their perspective in the DA's office. This prosecutor was so bothered by what he saw, he called this a murder, and he said it had been covered up. Um, That was sort of remarkable to us at the time. I mean, to have multiple DA's, assistant DA's speaking out publicly about a sitting DA just shows the the remarkable nature of what Jackie Johnson did to help those officers in that case. She didn't present an indictment. Uh, that was another element of the case. It's And in many ways, that case uh, was at the beginning of her tenure as uh, the district attorney, and, and that case has followed her and is well known in that community down there. Um, Fast forward about eight years later, uh, in 2018, one of the officers in that case, uh, Corey Sasser, was involved in a domestic uh, situation with his estranged wife. Uh, That got really out of hand, and he was arrested. There was a standoff with police. And there were real questions about that way that case was handled. Sasser eventually shot and killed his estranged wife, her male friend, and then turned the gun on himself. That was in 2018, and that really shined another light on this DA's office, this police department, and this judicial system and raised more questions about do they? What do they do when their own get in trouble? Do they protect them? And now we have the Arbery case. And again, um, there's a lot of finger pointing going on between uh, Johnson's office and the police department and 
Um, it remains to be seen exactly how all that shakes out, but they are again embroiled in, in a case that has now garnered national attention and has really focused um, attention on the way justice is handled in this in this corner of Georgia. So we'll see what happens. And to see the attorney general and, and the GBI uh, t- take action like this, is it is it a surprise that they are being more assertive in their in their role in this case, given all the the uh, international attention? Well, I mean, I think they, um, you know, the the state quickly moved in uh, when this video hit. I mean, it was uh, the the amount of scrutiny and attention that this. Uh, uh, judicial circuit and this police department has received in the past has mostly been on a local and maybe statewide level. Um, this case has garnered so much attention and and rained so many questions down on the entire state of Georgia that I think uh, it, it's um, you know now now the world is kind of seeing how things are done there and and are, are questioning it. Do, do, does the office have a I mean, what, what, how, how do you characterize how local prosecutors handle when, when the state you know, heavyweights kind of step in? Do they have a decent relationship with the GBI or is it pretty testy? The, I think the larger question here is how the, how the DA's office um, handled it in the days before the GBI came in. And that is really the subject that uh, Chris Carr's office is looking at. And, uh, and that will be, I think, receive a lot more scrutiny in the days and weeks to come as we learn how this case was handled now that the world's attention is focused on it. Now we have Joyette Holmes, the newly appointed district attorney from Cobb County, uh, who's the fourth prosecutor to inherit the case. Uh, she says the call to serve will not be taken lightly. What, what, what do you know about her? She is a former magistrate judge in Cobb County and a former pro- prosecutor who worked with Reynolds as an assistant DA when he was the district attorney in that in, in Cobb. She became the Cobb district attorney last year when when Reynolds uh, took the helm at the GBI. So they have worked together before. Um, everybody who knows her says she's fair and up to this challenge, but this will certainly be the biggest case she's ever tried and um, it will be uh, it will definitely be a challenge because there will be the world's attention on this case and how it's handled. And Brad, before I let you go, what is the single most difficult part of covering this case um, f- from your perspective? Because it's so fast moving. It's one of those breaking stories where it seems like you've been writing three stories a day on it. Uh, so what's what's been the biggest challenge trying to figure out uh, what's what's new and, and how to cover such a, an important um, a slaying, an important development. Well, I mean, you know that that video is so difficult to watch. That the video of the actual killing, and I think what we have been trying to do, um, you know, there's so much um, anger around that that video and that and what the way this the final minutes or seconds really and minutes of uh, Mr. Arbery's life played out. I think what we are trying to do is go back and try to piece together what was happening in the days, hours, weeks, months leading up to uh, his death and and how this went so wrong so quickly. Um, 
and and also uh you know just trying to cover something that there's so much attention on um we do this all the time with every story but the stakes even feel higher trying to be accurate and nail down all the facts so that um um you know, we make sure what we're reporting adds to the public's understanding of, of what's going on and not um, um, go in a direction that, that sort of adds to the confusion. And, and there's a lot of information out there. Some of it's, you know, accurate. Some of it is not. So we want to make sure that what we report uh, is adds to the public's understanding and is is grounded in really solid reporting. So just trying to nail that down is what has been most difficult and most challenging. Brad, thank you so much for for joining us and all your reporting on this. Uh, We know you'll be carefully covering this in the weeks to come. Uh, And hang in there, man. That was a good look at the lay of the land by two journalists who've been following this case day in and day out. So what's next? Well, Next up will be what's called a preliminary hearing. For a newspaper reporter or a podcaster, this can be a goldmine of information. First of all, the prosecution has to lay out its case. It might not put up all its evidence, but it has to put up a good bit of it. And sometimes what you hear can be extremely revealing, even shocking. Most often, a case will be indicted first. And if that happens, there's no need for a preliminary hearing. But here in Georgia, there's a state of judicial emergency because of the pandemic. Under court order, no grand juries can be convened until June 13th at the earliest. So in the Arbery case, we get to have a preliminary hearing. It's usually presided over by a magistrate judge who will have to decide whether there is enough probable cause to bind the charges over to a grand jury. In other words, is there enough evidence to make the charges stick until a grand jury convenes? We're going to turn to Atlanta criminal defense attorney Don Samuel, Breakdown's longtime resident legal expert. He'll explain why this can be such an important hearing to the lawyers defending the McMichaels and Bryan. Most defense lawyers would say they like preliminary hearings, not because they'll necessarily get their defendant out of jail, but because they'll get a a sneak preview of what the state's case is and thereby figure out what they need to do to prepare the defense. Another bonus, Samuel says is that you get sworn testimony by a lead investigator. It's not only subject to cross-examination, it puts in stone what the officer's testimony should be going forward. If the officer says, well, the first time I interviewed John Smith, he told me X, Y, Z, you can count on it at trial that that's what the law enforcement officer's testimony is going to be. And if he changes his testimony, you know, at trial, then, uh, you know, you have the ability to impeach him, cross-examine him with his prior sworn testimony at the preliminary hearing. Samuel explains why defense attorneys rarely go into a preliminary hearing expecting to win. The reason you don't go into a preliminary hearing in order to win is because the amount of information, testimony, evidence needed to bind it over, meaning you could remain in jail and and await um, the grand jury's decision, is so low. The threshold of of the burden of proof is so low. It's just probable cause. It's not even 50%. It's not even a preponderance of the evidence. It's just, is there a reason to have arrested this person? So you don't really go into a preliminary hearing in most cases with the hope of winning. It's it's not a win-lose situation. It's an opportunity to learn. If the case is bound over, the defense will then ask for a bond hearing before a superior court judge. 
because all the Glen County judges recused themselves, Timothy Walmsley from Savannah was assigned the case. He'll decide whether the McMichaels and Bryan can post bonds and get out of jail awaiting trial. And because of the pandemic, look for these hearings to be conducted virtually by video. After that, expect District Attorney Holmes and her team to present the case to a grand jury. If it approves felony murder charges, the case will head toward trial. But as we saw in Breakdown Season 7, the case against DeKalb County Police Officer Chip Olson, there's a chance that at least Travis McMichael's lawyers will try to get the case dismissed on immunity grounds. They could contend he acted justifiably in self-defense. That could result in a mini-trial before the real trial. And, of course, where a trial would be held is an open question. Will the defense move for a change of venue because of all the pretrial publicity? Probably. This case has attracted as much media attention so far as did the hot car murder case against Justin Ross Harris, which we covered in Season 2. Interestingly, that case started in Cobb County and was tried in Brunswick. Could the reverse be true this time? We'll see. Before we go, let's hear from the McMichaels legal teams, both of which held press conferences after their clients' arrests. Greg McMichaels' lawyers are Frank and Laura Hogue from Macon. They're not only husband and wife... They're law partners, and they are highly regarded defense attorneys. Here's Frank standing outside his law office saying why this case has generated so much national interest. Is that it appears to be yet another in a long line of tragedies we've seen too often. A young African-American, a young African-American man dies senselessly by gunfire at the hands of a white man either a police officer or one acting in the place of a police officer, while that young black man was engaged in nothing more than the innocent act of walking or jogging down an American street while being black. We know those stories. We know those tragedies. We too have grieved for those young men and have been angered by those stories. This case at first appears to contain some of the same elements that feed into the despicable and violent history of racism in our country, just based upon what little the public knows about this case up until now. But this case is not that story. And when we bring it out in the proper venue, a court of law, at the proper time, the truth will reveal that this is not just another act of violent racism. Greg McMichael did not commit murder. Greg McMichael is not a party to the crime of murder. This is not some sort of hate crime fueled by racism. Hogue acknowledged this is a case where a young black man lost his life to violence and his family is grieving. At the same time, he said, the how and why of it should not be shoehorned into the narrative that's been told so far. In just the few days that we've been Greg McMichael's lawyers, we have amassed witnesses, documents, videotape that tells a very different story. 
both about Greg, about his son Travis, and about Ahmaud Arbery. Later, Bob Rubin and his law partner Jason Sheffield held their own press conference on behalf of Travis McMichael outside their Decatur law office. Rubin, who's been a regular breakdown commentator, said he and Sheffield are well aware of how high emotions are running in this case. He also said their hearts go out to the Arbery family. No matter how you look at this case, a young man has died, and that is always a tragedy. And that is at the forefront of our minds as we proceed down this road. But that does not mean that a crime has been committed. Reuben then gave this admonition. We have sweated blood together to do everything we can to fight for justice for everybody, for all segments of society, because we know how oppressive the machinery of the government can be. And that is why, as I stand here today in front of you, I am, I am so saddened at where we are in this matter. People who know better than to rush to judgment. People who know better than to engage in stereotyping are rushing to judgment, are stereotyping. And that saddens me. Because those are people I truly ally with most of the time. As I said, William Roddy Bryan was arrested May 21st and charged with felony murder and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. Bryan's lawyer, Kevin Goff, said his client bears no responsibility for Arbery's death and has passed a polygraph examination that effectively exonerates him. In his press conference, Goff made some startling declarations. We agree with the Arbery family that justice delayed is justice denied. And I will not sit idly by as my client is held in lockdown for his own personal safety 23 hours a day in a tightly confined space for the next 18 months. He will not survive. He will lose his house. He will lose his car. He will lose everything unless released on bond. Accordingly, we are this day filing a constitutional demand for speedy trial. Goff said he'll be ready for trial by July 4th. He said he's going to start filing a flurry of motions and expects them to be heard by June the 12th. We also agree with the Arbery family that this case should proceed forward despite the pandemic. These are challenging times to be sure, and the risks are very real. But the indefinite suspension of the right to trial by jury would be contrary to our Constitution. The grand jury room is too small for social distancing, he said. So to help the prosecution, Brian may be willing to skip the grand jury process altogether and go to trial not on an indictment, but what's called an accusation. Goff also said this. We could even go a step further. We don't need to spend weeks picking a jury in this case. Why don't we just agree right now to go ahead and take the first 12 jurors out of the box? Roddy and I are quite comfortable with having this case tried this summer by the good people of Glen County. We'll see how that plays out. The morning after Brian's arrest, GBI Director Vic Reynolds and Cobb DA Joyette Holmes appeared at their own press conference outside GBI headquarters. 
Here's Reynolds. I want to take a moment as well, a little bit more of a personal note, and thank the uh, Arbery family for their patience and thank the city of Brunswick and Glenn County and the state of Georgia and the citizens here for their patience as well. As most of you will recall uh, who've been following this case, the GBI was requested to become involved. I think today's our 16th day of the investigation. When we first became involved, we uh, uh, respectfully uh, requested uh, the citizens of Brunswick, Glenn County, and the state of Georgia, and to some extent this country, to grant us some patience to allow us to conduct the investigation. Uh, that's been done, and, and I want to tell you on behalf of this bureau, we sincerely appreciate that. Reynolds said the GBI's investigation into the shooting is almost over. At this time, he said, he doesn't expect anyone else to be charged. He said a separate investigation into possible prosecutorial misconduct by the first two DAs who handled the case is almost finished, too. The GBI, he added, is working hand-in-hand -hand with the U.S. Justice Department on that. The GBI will turn over its findings to the state attorney general's office, which will then decide whether something needs to be done, Reynolds said. And we also got to hear from Holmes, speaking out publicly for the first time in the case. She said she had talked to the Arbery family and expressed confidence her office is up to the task. That we are going to make sure that we find justice in this case. We know that we have a broken family and a broken community down in Brunswick. Taking questions, Reynolds addressed why Brian had been charged with felony murder when he didn't pull the trigger and has said he was only a witness to the killing. I can tell you that if we believed he was a witness, we wouldn't have arrested him. Uh, we believe the evidence would indicate that his underlying felony helped cause the death of Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, it'll be the cop district attorney's job, their responsibility, which they take on to prove that in a court of law. But they've been involved with us in the decision making of this particular arrest. I think they're as confident as we are, we are they'll be able to prove that up in the court of law when that day comes. Reynolds ended his press conference with this. On behalf of the Bureau, I can't begin to tell you how much we appreciate uh, the, the, the interest in this case. I know there's been a great deal. Uh, I will tell you that uh, there's been a lot of questions posed to us. There's been a lot of phone calls made to us, uh, and we appreciate the community's involvement. Uh, the reality is we make our decision based on facts in a case. And, and uh, I, I will stand before you today and tell you that's exactly what we've done in this case. The agents have made arrests based on facts in the case. I'm proud of the fact that they haven't made any arrests based on any type of pressure, any type of social media, any type of phone calls or anything of that nature. And I think that's exactly the way the system works. I hope in the end that our involvement in this case, the way we've handled the case, hopefully brings uh, uh, an air of credibility to the criminal justice system, particularly here in our state. Thank you very much for listening to this special episode of Breakdown. With such an important story happening here in Georgia, we felt like we had to jump in. And of course, this case is far, far from over. So I assure you, we'll be back. More to come. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted and narrated by Bill Rankin and Greg Bluestein, produced by Bria Felician and Bill Rankin, Edited by Jennifer Brett. Sound design by Bria Felician. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Brad Schrade, Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Monica Richardson, and Pete Corson. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown. And please, during this pandemic, use social distancing 
and wear a mask when you're out in public. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.